The scripture reading this morning is from the gospel, or this evening. It's okay. I'm still working on it. Um, this evening, we're, we're continuing our study in the gospel of Mark, and tonight we come to this place where Jesus tells a story, an allegory, um, about people who are sitting there and listening to the conversation, and he has some amazing things to say that remind us of how much he loves us and what he really wants for us. And so, hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect them some of the fruit uh, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priest and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you don't know this already, um, not only is today Saturday, but tomorrow is Mother's Day. Um, and, you know, whether I, not everybody in here is a mother. I'm not a mother. Um, you, you have a mother. Maybe you have a grandmother. Maybe there's been a woman in your life who's loved you really well and has been very life-giving. Um, but something we love about the moms in our life, you know, whether they're our actual mothers or women in our lives who have a great impact on us and give us life, is that they, they, they celebrate us in really special ways. Um, and one of the most special women in my life um, I met because I started dating Jamie Wright, or Jamie Hudson at that point. And Jamie introduced me to her grandmother. And I remember meeting Mimi when I was 20 or 21 years old. And if you can imagine walking into this house and there's a woman there, and she greets you with a smile, and it's almost difficult to say anything other than um, just to answer her questions about yourself, because she's so interested in you. And I remember one of the things she would always say, we would ask her, um, how are you doing today, Mimi? And she'd say, it's the best day ever because you're here. You know, and, and that's part of what we love about our mothers. And um, you know, sometimes our moms, you're, you're thinking, well, they don't always speak the truth. Well, Actually, when it comes to like overly celebrating a child or overly celebrating a person, I think moms, when they're doing that, are actually expressing the truth of the situation, that we are made in God's image. Every man and woman is created worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. And women in a special way, I mean, both men and women are image bearers of God, but women in a special way um, exhibit this creative, life-giving ability by being women. Um, you know, it's part of why it's such a unique position that Mary experienced you know, as the mother of Jesus. Uh, they're life givers, um, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually, they give life. And I want to read you this letter that Mimi gave to Jamie, um, and it was, 
I found it after Mimi had died um, in a Bible that Mimi had given to Jamie. And just listen to this. Think about the life-giving words we can give to one another because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Dearest Jamie June, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. 1 John 4, 7. Love, that power that makes a difference, covers the lives of those it touches. I would like you to have, I would like to share my love with you and give you this little holy Bible which was given to me by my precious mother in 1930 when I was 13 years old. God's promises have always stayed with me, and I have learned to tell time by faith's clock. God's love is limitless, and may he continue to bless you and yours as you follow his every commandment, serving him with all your heart and your soul. You will always be God's gift of love to me, joyfully, Mimi. You know, where else but in the love of God that he's given us in Jesus, this kind of incredible, lasting, more than generations, this kind of love that he gives us, where else can you find that kind of love except in this message that Jesus is communicating, even here in Mark 12, that there's such a thing as being part of God's kingdom in a, in a really profound way. And, and I would say that, that that letter that Mimi wrote wasn't just platitudes, it was actually the truth of who we are before one another because of who God has made us. And the Bible cares about the truth. And we live in a time where understanding the truth or telling the truth or where to even find the truth can be very difficult and complicated. But listen to some of these scriptures about what the Bible says about honesty, about bold honesty, about truth. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Or Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 says, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Or Luke 16, when Jesus says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. Or 1 John chapter 3, which says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in the truth. There's more to the truth of what God wants us to understand than simply facts. If you can imagine a little girl coming before you right now, and she has like a pink little tutu on, and makeup kind of smeared on her face, and her hair's kind of all over the place, and she has all these plastic diamonds on, and she says this to you, do I look like a princess? Now, what's the truth? The truth is, she's worthy to be celebrated, and she's worthy to be loved. Yes, with your plastic diamonds and your ridiculous makeup and, and your little tutu, you look like a princess. Like, there's more to truth than simply facts. And what Jesus is, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders, are asking Jesus they want answers to certain facts. And Jesus tells them the truth. He tells them what it really means to have a relationship with him, what it really means to know him, what it really means to be part of his kingdom. And so in this text this evening, Jesus speaks the truth. We're going to walk through it together. And um, maybe at first glance, maybe you haven't really gone far into this before, but this is incredible, Jesus' response to the chief priests and the elders in light of what they have been asking him. So here's what we're going to do. Um, let me start with some background. The disciples, if you remember, at this point in Mark 12, have made this journey from Capernaum to the city of Jerusalem, and, and Jesus is making his way there, not just to celebrate Passover, but to be Passover. So we're, we're getting closer to the cross. We're moving towards the cross. Uh, before this, you find him in the temple, and, and he's turning over these tables because it's kind of become a farmer's market for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what they do is they kind of skim off the top of whatever's sold in there. It becomes sacrifice. And Jesus says, no, this... You don't understand, relationship with me is not about making money here. It's about having a real relationship with the God of heaven and earth whom you can celebrate, whom you can love. 
And the Pharisees aren't super excited about this because, again, they're losing money. And so they get frustrated with Jesus, and they come to him, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Like, why do you get to do these things? Who are you anyway, Jesus? And Jesus replies to them with a question. And this is in Mark chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? Tell me. Now, what Jesus has done in this is he's, made, he's really pushing them to consider what do you mean, where's my authority? Let me ask you a question. Where's your authority? See, they're asking, um, Jesus is asking them this question. Because if they say that John's baptism was from humans, then it's okay that John was uh, beheaded. It's all right that he, that he was killed. Because he said he was a prophet of God, but if his baptism and his whole message is just from himself, it's okay that he was killed. But if John the Baptist was from heaven, and the Pharisees were afraid to say that it wasn't, because John the Baptist was so popular then that means what they did was really horrible, and they actually killed one of the prophets of God, and um, the people would be mad at them. And so they don't really know what to say, and they discuss it amongst themselves, and they, they answer Jesus, and they say, we don't know. And then the last verse of chapter 11, Jesus says this, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So you're not going to be honest. I, he, Jesus sees into their hearts. He says, you're asking questions because you're trying to manipulate me. You want the facts. I want you to see the truth. I want you to see more. So Mark chapter 12 with these tenets, this is a story about the rejected son and the rejected cornerstone. And he's, he's pointing this directly at the Pharisees, and I think you'll understand why as we kind of make our way through it. So to kind of review the story, to make sure you catch it, there's a man, he plants a vineyard, and um, he, leases, he leases the land to some tenants because he's going to move away to a different town. The owner wants to, some of the fruit from the land, and so he sends uh, servants back to go get some of the, the grapes and to get some of the wine. And the first time they just say no and they send them out. And then the owner of the land says, okay, he sends another servant. And the servant goes and they say, okay, they beat him and send him out. And there's many other servants who are sent. And the response is the same. But eventually the owner says, okay, they've beaten my servants. They, they've, they've kicked them all out. They won't let me in. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And he says, they will respect my son. Now remember, this is, a, this is a metaphor. There's like an allegory going on here. Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees. And um, you know, they're asking, well, who's who in this? Like, who, which character is who? And so the owner says, okay, I'll send my son. Because they will respect my son. Like, they, you know, if I send my son, they will respond to him. They'll respect him. But what do they do? Instead, they conspire. And they say, hey, this is the heir, actually. If we kill him, we get all of his stuff. Like, this is the heir. Let's, let's go ahead and do that. And so they kill him, and they throw him out. And so what, what's being proven here is that these, these current tenants, the ones who think they own this place, have become an authority unto themselves. Do you see? They're asking the question, where's your authority? Why do you have authority? And Jesus says, well, where's your authority? And they're like, well, we're not going to answer that. And so Jesus tells a story about, okay, where then do we find ultimate authority? Like, where is ultimate authority? So he sends his, the owner sends his son, they kill his son, and then Jesus says in verse 9, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The hope was is that if God sent his son, if the owner sent his, his son into the vineyard, that they would finally listen. But they don't. 
They kill him. They push him out. And so this ultimate question of, okay, well then who will they listen to? Well, they're listening to their own hearts. Now, as Americans in our particular culture, we very much understand the idea of authority. Like, we kind of, we, we, we act like we want to live like, well, no one has authority over me. Our culture really does this. You know, we're taught kind of to reject all authorities. You know, Ben Franklin actually wrote this. It's the first right of every citizen to question authority, right? So it's deeply in us, unless it comes to our own authority. We don't really like our authority challenged. Are you seeing what's happening here? Like, what is the ultimate authority in your life? What actually has ultimate authority over you? In the Gospel of Mark, we're learning about the authority of Jesus. For Christians, we say our ultimate authority is Jesus. Why do we say that? Well, if you read the Gospel of Mark, if you follow our study as we've been going through it, what kind of authority does Jesus have? He has authority over sickness. He heals people. He has authority over evil. He casts out demons. He has authority over the wind and the weather and the storms. He can take bread and multiply it. He can take fish and multiply it. He even has authority over life and death. We have not seen Jesus face a single thing that does not immediately bow to his immediate word. If he says stop, it stops. If he says rise, it rises. If he casts it out, it goes away. Like Jesus has this ultimate authority. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, we read about Jesus' authority. It says this in verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that, every, that in everything he might have the supremacy. From the scriptures, God is pushing us to, to tap into this reality. Jesus has ultimate authority. And yet, this story, what we've read so far, is the story of a rejected son. He's pushed out, he's kicked out, he's killed, despite the owner's wishes. But the scriptures are telling us, and Jesus is telling a story here where he's pushing him to this next session, section about the rejected cornerstone, is that you think you can reject the son. And then he, he asks them to consider... The stone the builders rejected has become their cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What's he doing there? Well, before we get too much into that, kind of go back to this concept first of what's the reference point in your life. Like, what's your ultimate authority? Or think about the things you have authority over. What do you do with those things you have authority over? You know, I was just talking to Kyle last week because, you know, I just moved in. I mean, I've been here like 11 months now, 10 and a half months now. And I finally got my workbench organized, and then he got inspired, and he got his workbench organized. And if you come into our garages and you just start playing with our tools, we're going to be fine if you're there with us doing it. But like this is our this is like our space now. It's where I get my assignments from Jamie, and I work those things out, or I work on my dirt bikes, or my mountain bikes, or whatever we're doing. Like it's my space. I have authority over this. I know what tools are here. This is I made this so that I could do these things. In much the same way, Jesus is the Maker of all things, by whom, through whom, for whom all things are created. If you think about the children's catechism, it says, who made you? God made me. Well, what else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Like we are actually created to live in light of the reality that Jesus has ultimate authority and his authority is good for us. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He holds all things together by the word of his power. If you are going to think in your life about the things that have authority over you, 
do they have the power to really hold your life together? Now, this is a question that people ask um, when they think about what they ultimately believe in. Like, do I believe in God or not? And maybe you have friends who are atheists, or maybe you've struggled and even thought, you know, God's not real at all. I want to read you an article. This was put out about 10 years ago in Newsweek, but it was about Woody Allen, the filmmaker, and there was an, this was the name of the article. It says, Still Working, Still Terrified is the name of the article. And listen to what it says. This guy, he's been interviewing him, uh, Woody Allen, and he, and he writes down some thoughts and some things that he says. He says, Allen has devoted his career to making films that consistently assert the randomness of life. At 72... He says he still lies awake at night, terrified of the void. I think Woody Allen's like 85 now, so you can see the article's older. He cannot reconcile his strident atheism with his superstition about the banana. But he knows why he makes movies, not because he has any grand statement to offer, but simply to take his mind off of the existential horror of being alive. Movies are a great diversion, he says, because it's much more pleasant to be obsessed over how the hero gets out of his own predicament than it is to think about how I can get about mine. So then the article says, well, what about the banana? Because during this interview, he's like slicing his banana into seven pieces. He says this. He goes, I know it would be a total coincidence if I didn't slice my banana into seven pieces. But if I do six or I do eight, something bad might happen. My family could be killed in a fire. I understand there's no correlation, but you know the guilt would be too much for me to bear. So it's easier for me to just cut the stupid banana. You know, it, it, even in that moment, as much as he's struggling to say, I don't believe that there's any kind of ultimate power and authority beyond me, he still cuts his banana in seven pieces because of the possibility that there might be something out there. The beautiful thing about what we read in the scriptures, and you see a picture of it here, is that the Father sends the Son so that we can know him. We don't have to wonder about who God is. Uh, we don't have to wonder how he would respond to people who are sick or what he's really going to do when he returns and he restores all things. We have it here. He brings grace, he brings hope, he brings mercy, he brings restoration, he brings people back to life, he gives promises. We read last week from Matthew 14, he's preparing things for us so we can barely wrap our minds around. He's preparing things for us, for us in particular. Not for you in general, just because you're a woodland person or spring person. Like For you in particular, the Lord has a deep and affectionate love. That's what it means to believe in God. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's what it means for us to begin to say, okay, I want to receive this one that's been sent, this son. See, a Christian growing in our understanding of who God is, what it means for us to grow spiritually, is we more and more begin to celebrate the reality that we don't reject the son. Rather, he has ultimate authority, authority over everything. You know, if you think about your life for a moment, and we tend to think this way, but how many times do I say, you know, this is, you know, I've got something to do, this is my time, or it's, this is my marriage, or this is my dating relationship, or this is my work, or my car, or my children, or my house, my health, my body, my money, my schedule, my future, my career, like, and we usually say that sort of thing to justify an action. Look, I have to do this, this is, this is my career, no, no matter the cost. Uh, these are my kids, no matter the cost, you know. Actually, as we grow in grace and we grow in understanding who God is, we begin to say, okay, everything I have is a gift from God. Ultimately, God is in control. Ultimately, he's going to be the one who has to sustain me. He's going to be the, have to one, be the one who cares for me. I am not my own. I am his. You know, my kids, 
um, as I, I think about how much I cherish them, I remember watching them play sports, whether it was Avery playing volleyball or William doing lacrosse or, or Walker playing uh, baseball. It's real easy if you've ever had your kids play sports and someone like fouls them really hard to get real upset. And I'm like, but that's my kid. It's like, and that's also a child you're mad at. Like what, you know, who has ultimate authority over your heart? The scriptures are telling us there's one that we can put our hope in that brings life and resurrection. For the Pharisees, for the teachers of the law, for the elders, they're rejecting the son that's being sent. And they very much understand that message as you see in the end of that text. But what about the rejected stone? Jesus goes immediately from saying, you've rejected the son, but don't you remember the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. See, the cornerstone is, is, was meant to be the reference point for building something significant. And so this, this owner who would have built these things had a cornerstone, and he built this little place where all the, the vineyard was, and that was his kingdom. And Jesus is saying, here, this applies to me. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The thing that you are thinking is so insignificant, chief priests, uh, Pharisees, elders, the thing you think doesn't matter Actually, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You are beholding the cornerstone of the very thing you're trying to give yourself to. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. He sent His Son. Jesus is saying, I'm the cornerstone. Now, why is this so significant for uh, the, the, the immediate audience? Because the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they're the ones responsible for guiding God's people in this moment. They're the ones responsible for making the kingdom of God come into reality more and more and more. And Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, you are the tenants. You're rejecting the owner. And remember the scriptures, the stones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Don't reject the cornerstone. You know, if you have a cornerstone off, if you've ever built anything and you don't get the edges just right, you know, and you try to make a box and you're like, well, that's not going to be, a, that's going to be a different shape now right? The cornerstone guides it. It directs it. And for us, when you think about who Jesus is, if he's saying he's really the cornerstone, if he's the one who directs us, it brings us great hope because it means we have an ultimate reference point in life. Now, I have two kids who are in college right now, and one of the things they like to ask me or when we talk about the future is like, what's going to happen next? Like, I'm going to finish college, and then like, what's the plan after that? And what I wish I could do is go before them and say, I've got this great plan. Here's 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 65. There you go. You're retiring. I wish I could lay that out for them. But it's actually foolish to even try. What can I do for them? I can remind them that there's actually a reference point that's going to be significant enough for you at 25, at 30, at 35, at 40. It's this cornerstone. Don't reject him. Don't reject the cornerstone. The father who sent the son to be with you, like, that's where your hope is meant to be found. That's where you're meant to be grounded. Jesus, who has authority, is the same one who gives the reference point. He directs our steps. Um, yesterday, I actually went mountain biking with a couple of the guys here at the Woods Edge who have been taking care of us. We've been talking about going. We keep getting rained out. And um, every time before we ride a mountain biking trail, I, you know, I, I'm always a little bit cautious to learn the trail. And so sure enough, we got to the trail we're at the trailhead. They start telling me about these jumps and these different obstacles that we can go on. I said, hey, man, that's awesome, but I need to, like, ride by them before I do anything because I don't know, like, I don't know what I don't know. What I know is I've fallen them before, and I don't like that. So, like, I need to look at the obstacles. So we rode, and I think almost towards the very end of the ride, we came across this tree, and it really wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, it's like, 
you know, 20 feet long, and if you fall off, it's just not that far. But I was like, nope, I'm going to go look at it. And so I go around, I drive around it, I look at the tree, and half of it's broken off. Now, that would have been bad. So I thought, well, I'll lift up this part and scoot it over to get it out of the way so no no one else gets hurt because I've made this plan. This is going to work for me, right? I lift up the tree. A snake takes off out from under me and go, and I'm like, well, I didn't anticipate that. Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. So many times in life, we think to ourselves, if I can just have the right authority, if I can have the right plan, I don't have to be anxious. It's good. I've got it all figured out. Listen, that's actually an idol. That's a lie. What we really need to be centered on is the fact that Jesus is the authority, that he is offering us a reference point to ground us, to guide us. You know, I've been mountain biking a long time. I've moved stuff that's broken many times before, and I should have known better that in this weather, I'm going to lift this thing up, and a giant snake's going to run over. You know, it was probably like 12 inches long, but it felt like it was a python, you know? Like, I jumped back. I called out to Ron. I was like, do you see that? He goes, no. I was like, it's right over there. It's kind of hard to see, but it's gone now. It was big, you know, whatever. Um, God calls us to ask ourselves, what is our real cornerstone? What are we really letting guide our hearts? And what's that for you? Maybe it's career. You know, when your career's good, it's fine to calibrate off of it. Things are going well. I'm killing it. But what happens when it doesn't go well? And what happens when someone's promoted past you? Now, what happens when someone climbs the ladder quicker than you do? What if your entire identity is wrapped up in how successful you are in your career? Or if you're a student in your grades? Or if you're a mom, if your kids are perfectly behaved right at this moment? Or whatever it is, what is your cornerstone? What's your center? What if it's relationships? What if relationships are your cornerstone? Um, you know, what if the relationship doesn't last? You know, Jamie and I have talked about this. You know, we've, we've been married 23 years, but, I'm, you know, one of us is probably going to outlast the other, and my money is kind of on her. Um, what's going to be enough for her when I'm not here? What kind of plans can I make to make sure she doesn't, like, suffer or miss out on anything? I can't. I've got to center myself on the reality of who God is in the midst of that moment, that his grace is sufficient for me now, for her now, and for her later, and for me later, that God's grace is good for us. And what if beauty is your cornerstone, or youth? You know, gravity wins. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're going to have to face this reality that even looks aren't going to be enough for you to calibrate your self-worth and your value off of. There's only going to be one thing that's going to be strong enough, powerful enough, permanent enough, able enough, comprehensively enough to be able to sustain you, resting in the authority of the Son and the fact that He is actually the cornerstone of your life, your reference point, your center, the only unchanging thing that God has given to you to say, that's enough for me. Part of the problem for us is that that can be hard, especially if you're new to the faith or if you're younger. It's hard to, to really live into that as you grow in your faith. I mean, and, and what I mean by growing your faith is I mean you last longer. Like as you get 10 years in and 20 years in and 30 years in and 40 years in, what you begin to realize is that as much as you treasure people, if you try to make them your cornerstone, not only are they going to let you down because nobody's perfect, but the problem is you actually kill them in the process. They're not very good at being Jesus for you. They will fail you. You're going to need a lot of grace for them. There's only one person you can actually count on being your authority and being able to make a reference point off of that's always going to steer you in the right direction. And it's this very one right here. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. He sent him. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12. 
Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They knew exactly who Jesus was talking about in this text. He was saying, you have been given the responsibility of caring for my people. You've been given the responsibility of revealing the scriptures and teaching the word. And you have beaten the servants. Who were the servants? Prophets that had come before, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Eventually, um, John the Baptist. It's why Jesus asked this question earlier, just, just above this. They're realizing he is talking about us. And then the sun's coming, and what are you going to do? Are you going to reject him? Are you going to accept him? Is he going to be your cornerstone? Are you going to make your own cornerstone? Is he going to be your authority? Or are you going to go with the authority of your own desires? They were now against him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So even here, Jesus is being rejected. But do you see right the, the opportunity that they had? Like, what if they had heard this at this moment and they thought, oh my goodness, we're rejecting the sun. We're rejecting the stone. I don't want to do that. How do you think Jesus would have responded? With grace. He would have welcomed them in. He would have said, the promises are now yours. But they reject him again. And I feel like as Christians, we go through this experience. There are going to be opportunities in your life where you say, am I going to trust God in this or not? Am I going to accept what Jesus said in this or not? Am I going to let him be my reference point in this scenario or not? We go through this all the time. And Jesus is inviting us to live into the fact that God actually wants us to be his beloved children. Let me read this last text to you. <clears throat> this is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is why Jesus wants you to, be, to come into this kingdom. This is what's happening when Jesus says he's going to be beaten and he's going to die and he's going to rise again. Verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, so we're talking about the ministry of what Jesus is doing and God's word coming to fruition. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. The heir in this story, we actually become part of that inheritance. We become part of that celebration. We become part of what God is doing, even in this moment. Now, I would encourage you, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or you're new to it or wherever you are, all of us need to be asking this question, where am I rejecting Jesus and where am I not looking to him to be my cornerstone? Like, where, where can I trust him? Where can I grow in faith? Um, you know, when you think about your baptism, if you've been baptized, that's actually meant to be a reminder to you that this is who you belong to. You're, you've, you belong to the king. You're his son. He sent his spirit. You get to call out to God as your Abba, as your father. You're no longer anything other than a child of God. That's who you are. That's your reference point. Says who? Says the king of creation, who speaks and things come into being, who holds all things together, the same one who speaks to you even this evening and wants to hold you together. You are a beloved child. Um, as we celebrate the supper, you think about baptism, it's a marker that we belong to that kingdom. As we celebrate the supper, it's a picture of what the son had to do in order for us to be able to celebrate in that kingdom. That he was beaten by the tenants. 
that he was pushed out. You know, Jesus himself is taken out of Jerusalem and cast out. It's the exact same thing we read here. They're inside, the tenants beat the son, and they take him out, and they leave him for dead, and they kill him. Jesus is giving them another opportunity to put their trust in the one that cherishes them and loves them. He's inviting them to experience what it means to have all the blessings and benefits of being a child of God, and yet they reject it. You know, for us in our own hearts, may God give us grace to know where we're rejecting him and where we're doubting his authority and where maybe we're looking to other authorities that really aren't leading to life. His is the only one that leads to the promise of resurrection and joy and forgiveness. So let's pray together and then we'll celebrate the supper before our king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think about this parable, um, this story that reminds us that There is one who has authority, that he is building his kingdom, that he is actually coming to gather fruit. And would you give us grace to ask ourselves the question, where are we trusting you? Where are we not trusting you? Where are we looking to you as our authority? Where are we not looking to you as our authority? Where are we truly allowing you to be the cornerstone for us to guide and be a reference for our hearts and our minds? And where are we not? And would you... By the power of your spirit, because we are your children, more and more help us to not reject you, but rather to embrace all the blessings that are ours as your children. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.